few days ago, I was uh, mountain biking with a friend, and we were discussing a video that I had shared with him, someone had shared with me, of an expert mountain biker. Um, you know, when you're not an expert, you like to watch experts, and you mix between, like, envy and also just um, a sense that I will never become anything near to what that person is. So this expert mountain biker, he jumps 50 or more feet from one dirt ramp to the other, which is not actually all that spectacular in itself. It would be spectacular to see me do that. I know I have full assurance that if I were to get enough speed to do it, my body and the bike would land on the other side, but not necessarily together. But he did this, but the thing that made it so incredible is that he landed on just his front tire and then rolled another 50 feet or so on just that front tire until coming to a complete stop. Can you picture it? Like the opposite of landing in a wheelie, landing on, the, on the, uh, the front tire. His back tire never touched. In the language of tricks, he landed this huge air in a nose manual, they call it, or some people call it a stoppy, which is just mind-boggling to watch. And I remarked on how he's probably invested those 10,000 hours, right, into becoming an expert. That's an idea put forward by Malcolm Gladwell, like he had to have been doing this forever and ever. And my writing partner rounded this thought out by saying this, he said, my favorite videos though are the ones that include the failed attempts, not because he likes to see bodies flailing through the air and people crashing hard, but like you see the work up to the success. And I love those kinds of videos, I agreed with him. And most if not all of us admire persistence, don't we? It's so often... uh, how good things come at the end of a challenging path, persistence. And in a culture where we increasingly associate challenge or difficulty with something unfair or unjust or unhappy, a respect for persistence lives on for now. But if you think about it, persistence itself isn't really the virtue. Just doing something continually, being determined and dogged to keep doing something. In fact, it could simply amount to nagging or stubbornness in some cases. The real power of persistence has to do with its underlying motivation. Why? Why do we keep at it? Why do we press on through challenge? Or better yet, what do we believe that keeps us pressing in? What do we believe that keeps us pressing on? According to our gospel reading today, persistence is in a certain kind of relationship to prayer, a certain, it matters to prayer. And at one of his disciples' requests, uh, Jesus is teaching them to pray. And we find out that there's an important dynamic, right, between prayer and persistence as Jesus tells a parable. It's strange to his disciples' ears. So if you, you heard it and you thought, oh, they have a lot of questions, well, so did they. It's strange to ours too. But the point of it has everything to do with what should motivate us to pray. To pray earnestly and to pray persistently. So let's think about that together. In verse 1, and you can follow along your order of service, or there's actually a Bible. It should be in your pew there if you want to take a look. Um, In verse 1, Jesus responds to the request, not merely with themes, Right? But with specific words to pray. He says, when you pray, say this. So let me just talk briefly about what we call the Lord's Prayer. This isn't going to be a full sermon on the Lord's Prayer, but uh, two summers ago, 2020, I, I preached four weeks on the Lord's Prayer. So if you want to do a little more of a deep dive, you can find those on, uh, on our website or on our podcast. First of all, you may have noticed that the prayer here in Luke 
is shorter than what we, we pray that is taken from its parallel in Matthew 6. Did you notice that already? Hey, why is the Lord's Prayer so short here? Because in Matthew 6, Jesus adds, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven to the second petition of that prayer. And then he adds, deliver us from evil to the fifth petition or from the evil one. There's nothing controversial about this. This is important. There's nothing controversial about this difference. Jesus may have, just, he may have taught this particular prayer several times in slightly different ways, or he could have elaborated on it, leading Matthew to, to include a fuller rendering of the prayer, of what Jesus taught about it, into the wording that we would pray, just more of what and how he taught them to pray. And what we pray every Sunday includes the do, this doxology uh, at the end, right? And you're like, hey, where's that? It's not in either of them. Well, the early church added that to the end of the prayer, and that first shows up in written form in an ancient text called the Didache, which is probably from the first or the second century. So they were praying this exact prayer and with that doxology at the end, and we're still praying it today. So in giving them words, specific words to pray, Jesus offers his disciples not a formula, but a focus. He gives them a clear guide that unites us all in prayer, right? We're not going to be able to say the same things and truly be united in our words if we're all praying extemporaneously. There's nothing wrong with extemporaneous prayer, but Jesus gives specific words. And that's why the church has always followed his lead, and we followed the Jewish tradition by writing our prayers based in Scripture so that we can pray them together. It's both and, extemporaneous and the prayers that Jesus gave us, and the prayers that the church has written over the centuries. In the 5th century, St. Augustine wrote a letter to a woman named Proba. He was talking about prayer and helping her to understand. And he explains why we even need to verbalize our prayers. Because yes, we can pray in our minds, with our minds, as Paul says, you know. But um, we pray audibly. He says we need to use words when we pray so that we may remind ourselves to consider carefully what we are asking, not so that we may think we can instruct the Lord or prevail on Him. All right, so the words we hear them said and they instruct and they inform us, and it actually tells us something about how we learn and how we think. And then, Augustine, he uses the Lord's Prayer to further the point. He says, when we say, hallowed be your name, we're reminding ourselves to desire that His name, which in fact is always holy, that it should also be considered holy among us. We're reminding ourselves of that. Then he says, but this, this is a help for men, not for God. And then he goes on. And as for our saying, your kingdom come, it will surely come whether we want it to or not. But we are stirring up our desires for that kingdom so that it can come to us. Then he says, when we say, deliver us from evil, we're reminding ourselves to reflect on the fact that we do not yet enjoy a state in which we will not suffer evil. Still the way it is. So how might we pray? And this is how he, he concludes. He says, It was very appropriate that all these truths should be entrusted to us to remember in these very words. Whatever be the other words we may prefer to say, we say nothing that is not already contained in the Lord's Prayer, provided, of course, we are praying as we're taught. So it's a central prayer. Yes, it's both thematic, but it's also put on to our lips so that we can immerse ourselves together in a kind of prayer that really invokes and evokes reality. 
right? Dallas Willard, the, a, theolo- or a philosopher, he said that ideas are just assumptions about reality. You ever thought about that? They're just assumptions about reality. Well, some, not all assumptions are created equal. Some are true and some are not. And this is what we're getting in this prayer, a reality in which to live. And I'll add a couple brief, th- brief things from the Lord's Prayer that the good bishop leaves out. The daily bread part, right? And the forgiveness part. The petition for daily bread is more than just a request for provision. It's a declaration of trust in whom we can trust, that we're giving our immediate future and the needs that future will inevitably, inevitably present to God. In fact, daily bread is literally translated bread for tomorrow. It has an immediate future sense. When we pray this with understanding, we're just reminding ourselves, in the words of Augustine, that nothing is ultimately certain, even if we have a detailed plan, even if we have a great physical fitness regimen, even a healthy diet or with a 401k with plenty of zeros behind it. When we pray this, we are giving all our ifs to God, beginning with our most basic needs. As C.S. Lewis once observed, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And so we get forgiveness in this prayer because Jesus is saying that we need to pray about it and we need to pray for it. The petition for forgiveness reminds us of the vertical and the horizontal necessity of reconciliation and peace. Not to mention the personal freedom that forgiveness brings to us. Why is it so important? Because you know this. We live in a world knit together or pulled apart by the health of our relationships. That's really what reality is. And it inevitably depends on forgiveness. And reconciliation and restored relationship are the destiny of the world. This is what we believe and have preached for 2,000 years. History is pointing toward total peace, toward order, shalom. And so forgiveness is the way we can and must begin to be reconciled to God and to enact that reconciliation in this network, this fabric of relationships that we have. And all of you have a piece of that larger fabric. Now then, what about this strange parable that follows? The Greek can actually be a bit complicated, and some scholars uh, you know, have argued about what words are referring to whom, you know, to the, is this to the sleeping man or the host outside his door? But if we read it closely in context, which we want to do, right? We want to do, things, will, things fall into place. We read it with the larger point of what Jesus is teaching. So he begins the parable with a rhetorical question. This is a rhetorical question to which the answer is obvious. He asks, and I'm just going to kind of summarize it, which of you, if asking a friend for hospitality supplies at midnight, can imagine that friend not getting up and giving them to you? What's the answer to the rhetorical question? The answer is no one. Nobody can imagine that happening. Because no one in that culture would do what this groggy neighbor, let's call him Bob, does initially. They can't imagine that he would do this. Even if Bob just finally got his nine-month-old Bobby Jr. to sleep, it's not going to happen. But the problem is it does happen in this very bizarre story, this disorienting story. And Jesus liked to kind of knock people off of their axis a little bit, right? I said axis, by the way. So what's the, the solution? What's the solution? What's, what's Larry going to do? You go, Bob, let's call the host, desperate host, Larry. He's got some hungry, weary guests. Well, Larry keeps knocking. 
And you know what? It works. The Greek word is anadaia. Impudence. We translate it. Or persistence. But most literally, do you know what it means? It means shamelessness. Because of his shamelessness, Bob is going to get out of bed and give him what he needs. At the point of his desperation, he's holding nothing back. And Larry says, I don't care how this makes me look or feel. I don't care if Bob is grumpy. I know he will help me. The question is, how does he know that? What I'm about to say is really important. Really, really important. Jesus is not saying the Father is reluctant. Like Bob, the groggy friend with his bedhead. He is saying prayer is like Larry who is asking and seeking and knocking as a host who believes, a host who knows his sleeping friend will come through for him. He is undeterred in his desire for what's needful. He's motivated by the right things and in his assurance that his friend will finally respond to his desperation. That's why he's persistent. So the parable is really about both the genuine importance of the need and the willingness to keep asking the right person. Does that make sense? Somebody nod your head. Instead of asking someone else, Larry continues to ask Bob. His dogged persistence is motivated by who he knows his friend to be and what he knows his friend has. That's the power behind this. That's why he's unwavering. This is why he's even shameless. So Jesus' disciples, when they pray and they don't see instant results, they're to keep trusting in the Father they have in heaven, the source. As it turns out, this is actually the contrast that Jesus goes on to build. Not only with a loving earthly father, but also with a friend who, yeah, has some earthly motivation for responding to his desperate friend's motivation. How much more is the key phrase? This story is just building toward an idea, and it's actually providing a contrast. If Bob has his earthly motivations because he sees that his friend is shameless and his friend believes he will help him, how much more as we Seek the Father, will He respond to to us? So Jesus concludes by asking more rhetorical questions, doesn't He? To which the answers are obvious. No father among you gives his children awful things when they ask for good things. How much more, Jesus says in verse 13, how much more will their heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He wants them to see, yeah, this is how it often works here. And even in a crazy situation where Bob is unmoved at first, but then you see Larry petitioning and praying and asking and seeking and knocking, and you see this guy finally has a reason to respond. But how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And there's another contrast. There's another escalation in what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus wants and even needs to shift the attention of his disciples at this point, this is important, toward the gift of the Spirit as an even greater good than the temporal things they may need or hope for. Pray for more of the Spirit, especially as you look ahead, especially as we look ahead at the life 
the life ahead of the disciples, but also the life we're living. The Holy Spirit is going to prove to be a deeper source in a world where suffering and scarcity are commonplace, evolving in every generation, but never dissolving. We're still here, friends, talking about this because the comfort and help of God's promised Spirit has proven time and again to provide something deeper for believers even in the face of suffering. How much more will the Lord give you His Spirit? It's proven to provide this something deeper. Confidence for those facing starvation, exposure, and torture in imperial Rome in the first century. Comfort for those suffering in the cold prisons of the Soviet gulag. Assurance of a better kingdom for families living under terrorist regimes in the Middle East. Sustenance for the souls of those enduring famine in East Africa. Songs of solidarity on the lips of those in our own land and in our own history who have cried and cried for justice but are still buried under the weight of generations of inequity. And yet the Holy Spirit is alive to them and they are alive to Him. And how much more will the Lord give to us when we ask for the Spirit? This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to and us to. Until the world finally arrives at its destiny of restored shalom, when every righteous longing is fulfilled, every sincere motivation for the good is met, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will sustain his people wherever they are and whatever they face. The people, and let's just be honest, the people God created in his own image and likeness to be free have in our freedom we have warped what god has made we've made systems and shaped the history we inherit into something with foul consequences and so we're not promised to be buffered from the world we've made but we are promised that god is with us and we're reminded that god incarnate was brutalized by this world too raised in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Hebrews 7.25 reminds us, He is able for all time to completely save those who draw near to God through Him since He ever lives to intercede for them. Imagine Jesus continuing to ask and seek and knock in the presence of the Father on our behalf. Jesus is the persuasion of all our prayers. In other words, Jesus is always praying for us like a priest lifting up the fallen and wayward people, persistently, shamelessly, motivated by the heart of the Father with whom He is united and the heart that He knows. So in closing, I just want to consider you to consider one thing, one more thing. What Jesus is really doing, He is drawing them into His own ministry of intercession, of prayer. Now, up to this point, it's fine. I understand if you have read this in, in terms of your own personal prayer life and the things you need and your relationship with the Father and His character and your motivation. And that's perfectly fine and well and good, but it doesn't end there because the, we have the ministry of bringing the needs and the problems and the desires of the world before the Father in faith. Because we know He is where our answers lie. Though we are certainly invited you know, to lift our own needs and desires to the Father, we are uniquely called to persistence in prayer for the life of the whole world. 
The missiologist uh, Leslie Newbegin, who served most of his ministry in India, once wrote these challenging words. It is surely a fact of inexhaustible significance that what our Lord left behind him was not a book, nor a creed, nor a system of thought, nor a rule of life. Those would come later. But from him, a visible community. He committed the entire work of salvation to that community. Not that we save, but we intercede, that we pray for, that we represent that which the Lord has for all of humanity, and we pray that His kingdom would come and His will would be done in our lives and for the sake of the world. And as Archbishop William Temple famously said, the church exists primarily for the sake of those who are still outside it. We're in the world as a remnant. We're in the world as an intersection sort of people between heaven and earth. We are the intercessors who ask and seek and knock. That's what we're doing every Sunday when we come to pray, not only for ourselves, but that we might not only pray for the world together, but be sent into the world to be the ministry of reconciliation. Simply put, the church is a community of shameless prayer. We're a peculiar people. We're always going to be weird, so just settle into it. We're sending the problems and the difficulties and the sabotage of the enemy to the cross of Christ. His cross is the hinge of history that has turned and is turning and will turn toward shalom, toward order, toward restoration and healing and peace. We believe it. Lord, help us to believe it, and we set our hopes upon it. And so just as Jesus taught us, we join the chorus of praying witnesses before us, turning this strange intensity that we have, this strange motivation that we have for the will of God into words, into our ministry to the world. As Julian of Norwich famously declared, all shall be well, and all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. We know this because we have a Father in heaven who loves us. And he loves the world he has made. And this is the Father who hears us when we pray. So Jesus, we ask you again to teach us to pray. We keep forgetting how in many ways because we look at and feel overwhelmed with all the things. All the things all of our things and all the world's things. So teach us again to pray and to believe and to be motivated by the heart of the Father, our one source and the, one, the only one who can save to the uttermost. We trust you. Help us to trust you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.